Okay, tonight's topic is Alexander and Jerusalem. Okay, so, in the book of Daniel, there is a vision of a goat smiting a ram. These uh, animals are clashing, and it's an allegory for the Greek, the Macedonian victory over the Persians, over Darius III. At the Battle of Isis in 333, the Macedonians win, and the cavalry heads east to take Damascus, the capital of the Aver Hanaha region, the beyond-the-river region of the Persian domain. Alexander himself doesn't go to Damascus. He heads south towards Egypt, <coughs> hoping to take over that great country. Uh, with the fall of Damascus, the satrapy had no central government, and each city would have to decide for itself whether or not it supported the incoming Macedonians or the outgoing Persians. Uh, this is a very difficult decision, because no matter who you side with, you're going to create an enemy. If you side with the Macedonians, what if their moment in the sun is fleeting and the Persians retake the territory? Well, then you're doomed. And what if you side with your existing overlords, the Persians, but it turns out that they, their empire is crumbling and the other guys win and have permanent victory? Again, you're doomed. So you had better choose wisely. Otherwise, uh, death and destruction will follow. So every city in the Avrahanaha region, including the province of Yehud, the Jewish region around Jerusalem, has to make a decision. Do they side with Alexander or do they side with, or they, do they side with Darius? Okay. Alexander, on his way south, orders Jerusalem to supply troops and material for his siege against the Persian naval power at the city of Tyre, of Tzor, in Lebanon. Um, Sidon, Sidon, capitulated immediately. Tyre, always the adversary of Sidon, does the opposite. They hold out uh, under Persian rule for several more months. And there's a, there's a very difficult siege, and the Macedonian army demands uh, Jewish conscripts from the, from the Jerusalem region. But Alexander go, goes further south, he comes back north, towards Sidon, but he doesn't go inland as far as we know. Doesn't go inland, which means he didn't go where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, okay. Now, according to Josephus, Alexander did go to Jerusalem. And he met the high priest whom he saw in his dreams. And tonight, in the, last half, the latter half of tonight's session, we'll discuss the Josephus account of that story and the Talmudic account of that story. But it's a silly story that never happened. Um, it's taken, it's borrowed from a Greek legend about the Celtic king Catamundus who besieged Marseille in the year 400 before the Common Era and saw the goddess Athena in his dreams. Um, so... This idea of a dream and seeing a vision of a, of a person or a, or a godlike figure and then uh, uh, rendering obeisance to that, it's an older legend from further west, from the, from the story of Celtic kings in, in, in France. Um, it's not an, an originally Jewish story. Why did Jerusalem surrender without a fight? Because we know that it did. Why did it surrender without a fight? Well... It had no choice, because Samaria had already fallen. The great fortress in the land of Israel was the fortress at Samaria. We'll discuss that at, uh, at some length in a few minutes. Um, ever since the ninth century before the Common Era, there had been 
an attempt to build up this fortification at, at Shomron, the city of Shomron, which is today Sebastia, in the West Bank. Um, and once that fell, or rather it uh, gave up the fight, it, uh, the defenders chose to renege on their deal with Darius and openly accept Alexander's, dom- uh, Alexander's rule, once that had fallen, the rest of the countryside, including Jerusalem, really had no chance to put up a, a serious military opposition to uh, the invaders. So, no serious opposition. Alexander's going to walk. Uh, Alexander's army is going to walk right in. Had Alexander gone to Jerusalem, if this story were actually true historically, he would have, as the story claims, offered sacrifices and worshipped the god of the Jews, because it was standard practice for. Uh, an arriving king, especially one who was a new conqueror, to pay a respect to the local deity. You never want to offend anyone in, in, in the celestial sphere. You want to cover all your bases. In a polytheistic world, you do these sorts of things. We Jews who are accustomed to believing in one God would find it anathema. But if you're a polytheist, so you conquer a people, especially if they welcome you with open arms, why not throw a few rice or, or, or droplets of incense on their God's uh, altar? In what respect? Well, we're going to talk about that story and how it didn't really happen. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. The, uh, the Macedonian victory was secured um, in 331 at the Battle of Gogamala in uh, Babylonia. And Jewish auxiliaries fought in the, in the Greek army to defeat Darius... And then, when there was an order uh, issued to rebuild some of the heathen temples that had been destroyed in the course of the battle, the Greeks finally got their first taste of Jewish piety and the Jewish um, hatred for idolatry and an unwillingness on the part of Jews to participate in a venture which we believe is Avodah Zarah. So his Jewish auxiliaries refused to uh, aid in in the reconstruction of heathen temples. So this was the intensity of Jewish monotheism on display. Um, in his own day, and in the, generations to, in the early generations to follow Alexander, the Jews neither cursed him nor appropriated him. This is an interesting point. The Jews cursed several other world figures who were conquerors of Eretz Yisrael, like, give me a name, Nebuchadnezzar, Sancheriv, um, and later on you'd have Titus. These people who on the world stage might have a sort of a neutral or positive reputation, but to us, the Jews, they're, you know, they're the worst of the worst. They're, they're the Rishaim par excellence. Why? Because they did us harm. So we cursed them. But other conquerors, in other civilizations, are appropriated as really part of their own. So, for example, Alexander was seen by the Egyptians as an Egyptian, or seen by the Persians as a Persian, not as a Greek or Macedonian who defeated their people, but rather they adopt him as, uh, as, an, as an adopted son, saying, he's part of our legacy. The Jews didn't do that either. We don't say Alexander Mokdon or Alexander Hagadol is a... Is a, like a a, a Jew, uh, an honorary Jew. We don't say these things. 
were basically neutral on him. And in the early generations... Uh, so that is a later story of dubious validity. Um, yes, there are uh, Alexanders in the, in the Talmud, R- Rabbi Alexandri, for example, but it was never a, tr- a, a, a really popular name. I mean, you have Hasmonean figures in the, in, the, in the line of succession. You have a few Alexanders. But that was already when the Hasmonean family was becoming Hellenized and assimilated. The early ones gave Jewish names. Okay? <coughs> so in the, in the first generations, he's not cursed, he's not appropriated by the Jews. The question is, why not? Uh, why is he so insignificant early on um, in the Jewish writings? So the answer that Elias Bickerman uh, tries to give is that nothing really changed in Judea after the, the, the Macedonian conquest, the, what we call the Greek conquest, that the overlord previously dwelled in Babylon or some other point to the east, and the satrap lived in Damascus under Persian rule. And that would change in the year 301 when the Egyptians, when the Ptolemies took over Eretz Israel, and now your overlord is to the south and to the west. But... Still, it's a foreign overlord with some kind of government representative in your country, but otherwise, life continues as it was. Only during Antiochus IV's regime, when he he outlawed Judaism, and during the independent Hasmonean period, was the political structure any different. But otherwise, from the days of Cyrus in 539 BCE, to the days of Titus in the year 70, for 600 years, outside the Hasmonean period in Antiochus IV, basically it's the same thing all the time. Jew- it's, it's a Jewish country. Jews live basically on their own in, the, in, in, the, uh, in the, the highlands, with the heathens living on the coast. And there's a foreign overlord, and there's local uh, autonomy for the Jews. So since there wasn't a sharp divide between the Persian period and the Greek period, therefore Alexander was not remembered as being all that significant, at least in the early generations, since nothing of, ma- of major consequence changed for, uh, at, the, at the ground level. Okay. Um, what about the Samaritans? So the quasi-Jewish Samaritans withdrew from the fortress of Samaria to Shechem, after Alexander's Macedonian colonists came in with their idolatry. Whenever you have a Greek conquest, what do they do? They bring their people to settle on the land, to have outposts of Hellenism in the conquered territories. So Samaria was a, was a so-called Samaritan, although that name wasn't used yet. It was a Cuthian uh, or Israelitish place. And these people are uncomfortable with the idolatry of the new Macedonians, so they leave and go to Shechem. Uh, which is further to the north. They are rejected in Samaria because of religion, and they rejected Jerusalem, or were rejected in Jerusalem because of matters of religion. Remember, in the book of Ezra, what did the Samaritans say about the possibility of of them participating in the construction of the temple in Yerushalayim? They asked for the opportunity to do so, but they were rejected. We don't want you. It's for for our people, the the Jewish Jews only. You're out. So they're not wanted in in Jerusalem. They're now uncomfortable in Samaria. They go to Shechem, where they make their own temple at Mount Grizim. And they refer to themselves as the Sidonians of Shechem. 
Why Sidonians? Because Sidon is a descendant of Canaan. So now they, they regard themselves as Canaanim, who, who have legitimate rights in the land of Israel that predate the Jews. That the Canaanim are of greater uh, uh, antiquity than so-called Israel or, or Yehuda. Question. Yeah. Uh, so biologically, they're a mixture of the remnants of the ten tribes and Kuthian uh, implant, uh, uh, imported peoples under the days of the Assyrians. It's a combination of both. Why would they, if they, if they want to make themselves as real Jews, yeah. be the sons of Canaan? I mean, they believe in the Torah, right? They're yes, like, so, it's, so it's, a, it's a bizarre thing. It's a, it's a bizarre thing, and, and Josephus writes about how the identity of the Samaritans would fluctuate. When it was convenient for them to identify as Jews, they would do so. When it was convenient for them to not identify as Jews, they would not do so. Kind of like people in the Holocaust with the Nazis, uh, you know, who said, I'm, I, I, I'm not Jewish. Uh, like, um, you know, other, um, for example... The, you know, Lithuanian Karaites, are they Jews or are they not Jews? So th- if it was convenient to be a Jew, they were a Jew. If it was un- inconvenient, if it was detrimental to your well-being, I'm not a Jew. The Achman Jada, they were not Jewish. Huh? Uh, in the yeah. Eichmann, they were right, they were not Jewish, yeah. So, <coughs> the, um, the Samaritans build this temple at Mount Grizim, it stays in existence until the year 128 when John Hyrcanus destroys it. And then John Hyrcanus, the great uh, Hasmonean conqueror, even defeats Samaria in the year 109. And so the Samaritans have a tremendous setback at that time. But right now, they have their new enclave at Hargrizim at Shechem. So the question, of course, is, why did they not join forces with the Macedonian colonists and teach the Macedonians the religion of ancient Israel and hope for the best, for some kind of a syncretic religion. After all, that's exactly what happened in the 7th century before the Common Era, when the Assyrians imported people. What happened to those imported people? They adopted what? The religion of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, for the most part, what we would call the Samaritan religion. It's different from the Jewish religion in a couple of different ways, but basically you have people who are polytheists who move into an area where the God of Israel is worshipped, and they develop this quasi-Jewish religion uh, to the God of Israel. Why didn't that happen again this time? With instead of Assyrian imports, Macedonian imports. Why not? No, they, they did believe in God. They were polytheists. It, it could have happened. Why not? Why didn't it happen? But Avodah Zarah didn't stop anybody 400 years earlier. So the answer is it was 400 years earlier. A lot, a lot of water under the bridge. What could happen, the creation of a syncretic religion in the, in the year 650 BCE was, was, was possible because monotheism in northern Israel wasn't all that strong. By the year 330 of, before the Common Era, the religion of the Torah and Hebrew monotheism was strong enough that it would be impossible to have a syncretistic religion of Macedonian polytheists and, and idol worshippers mingling with remnants of the old 12, uh, ten tribes and coming up with a, a quasi-Jewish religion. It couldn't happen. It's too late in the game. So therefore, the Samaritans have to walk away from what had been their home for several centuries and make a new home uh, in Shechem. 
that's that's the, the, the fate of the Shomronim. But it okay. had to be pretty intolerable for him after centuries to go ahead and pick up and move. Well, when you have uh, physically, imp- militarily impressive uh, <laughs> Macedonian colonists bossing you around, you do whatever you have to do. I mean, uh, 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 who has the spear? Who has the sword? The, the, co- the new conquerors, not the, uh, the relatively weak uh, Kuthian population. Okay. The Greeks knew basically nothing about the Jews prior to the Alex- uh, uh, Alexander's conquest. And so, with the whole of the Orient open to them, from Egypt to India, Greek scholars did not rush to Jerusalem to learn about the Jews. We Jews are, are very Judeo-centric. We think we're, we're the be-all and end-all. That the, the God created the world with the Hebrew language and we're the greatest things since sliced bread. All right. Well, that's what we think, but not everybody else has to think that. And so, since Jews were un- re- basically unknown to the Greek world, to the Hellenistic world, when they had the opportunity to study us, but also the opportunity to study the Egyptians and the, and the Mesopotamians and guys all the way down to the, to the, the, the Ganges River, they're not rushing to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, to study the, the, the God of Israel. They're not. Okay. Um, Plato studied under the feet of which prophet? No, which Jewish prophet? <laughs> which Jewish prophet? According to Midrashic legend, Plato met Yirmiyahu and studied at the feet of Yirmiyahu. What's wrong with that? Different centuries. Chronologically, it's way off base. Okay, that that uh, Yirmiyahu is considerably before Plato. Uh, <laughs> maybe he didn't study at Shayashiv. <laughs> he, <did. laughs> he, he did. All right, so. Um, so Plato studied, Plato studied at the feet of Jeremiah, according to legend. Why was this legend invented? So that's an interesting question. And who invented it? So, interestingly, it was invented by Christian apologists in the 2nd century, and yet somehow made its way into this, the literature of Chazal. Um, and it was invented to counter the claims that um, the Judeo-Christian religion borrowed from the Greek philosophers. So we'll turn it on its head and say what? That they borrowed from us. That their big chacham learned from our Navi. That Plato learned from, from, from Yirmiyahu. Um, but that's not the, uh, the only example. Aristobulus, who was a Jewish philosopher around the year 175 before the Common Era, claimed that Moses influenced Plato and Pythagoras. And there are a few other examples I could cite of claims made within the, the Jewish and or Christian tradition about um, great uh, Greek intellectual figures having learned something from either directly or indirectly Judea- from Judaic sources. But we don't know it's not true. Okay, so direct human to human encounters we can no, prove are not true if chronologically don't work. Okay, so how do you know it's not true, at least in, in, in the abstract, that they didn't borrow from? Okay, very good. When was the Septuagint? <coughs> in the 240s. So they didn't have the uh, Bible then? Right. Uh, so in, in the first hundred years after Alexander, they couldn't read our literature. Um, now, that's assuming everything we had to say was only in Hebrew. So, truth be told, that the Aramaic language was the common language of uh, the Persian uh, Empire, and Jewish ideas could have influenced Greek culture to an extent, even before Alexander, mediated through the Aramaic language. Didn't, didn't need to be exclusively the Hebrew Bible. It could have been ideas that are in the lingua franca. That's true. Uh, not necessarily Hebrew, but... Well, very soon after the conquest, he does. So, 
but, but even though it was possible for, for Jewish ideas through Aramaic to filter down to, to Hellenistic society, the bottom line is that the chosen people are not mentioned in classical Greek literature. The earliest writers uh, don't know about the Jews. The first one to mention the Jews... But yes, but, but if, if, if you're not mentioned at all, it's likely because knowledge simply doesn't exist. The early Hellenistic writers were, were fairly encyclopedic in what they... It's not just an issue of, of the, the style of life. It's lack of knowledge. Lack of contact. Lack, lack of contact. That's an important point also. We're insignificant compared to the bigger civilizations that interested them much more than we did. Okay. So, the earliest Greek writers, around the year 300, regard the Jews as a race of philosophers like the Indian Brahmins. Notice the, co- the comparison to if people in India, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. Why? Because that's what actually interested the Greek writers, the, great, the glorious civilizations of India. And incidentally, these little small race of Hebrews in, in, in the strip of land connecting Africa and Asia are like the philosophers of India. Who writes about this, this sort of thing? Uh, Theophrastus and Clearchus of Soli, who was a disciple of Aristotle. But then once the Greeks knew a little bit more about the Jews, for example, Hecateus of Abdera, he wrote about the expulsion of Jews from Egypt, uh, that the Jews were lepers who were kicked out of Egypt. Not the Exodus story that we know from the Bible, but uh, a, a more unpleasant version, at least as far as we're concerned. Uh, this would have very anti-Semitic overtones uh, in the next generation, where Manitho, uh, an Alexandrian monk, uh, would not monk as Alexandrian native Egyptian priest would uh, really say vicious things about our people, saying we were expelled for all sorts of in- iniquities from Egypt uh, uh, in times long ago. Not that we were slaves and, and achieved our freedom through you know divine uh, salvation. Doesn't, uh, doesn't Josephus in History of Jews bring that out? Yes, against the Pyrrhian and <laughs> against Apian, Apian. Uh, he, he mentions the twisting of the past by anti-Jewish Greek writers, and then defends the the, the biblical account as being you know, the accurate one. Um, what Hecateus says is that Moses made great laws. Moses was a great legislator, and that he falsely attributed those laws to God. Okay, and that those laws kept society strong and long-lasting, which explains why a thousand years later the Hebrews still exist, despite being a fairly small people, having been conquered multiple times by Assyrians, Babylonians, and whatever. Uh, nonetheless, they survive as a distinct race because the laws of the Torah, the Mosaic Torah, were very impressive and designed to keep society uh, functioning. And this is part of a, a general idea that religious fiction is indispensable is the indispensable foundation of a state, as people are willing to die for it. That you need to have some kind of religious myth in order to keep uh, the, the state going. You need to be ha- to have willing uh, martyrs for the cause, and only some sort of divine law will pr- will produce that kind of devotion to the cause. Well, it seems like things haven't changed. That's true. Now, Hecateus accuses the Jews of being unsociable. Later, Manitho would say the Jews are misanthropic. They hate others. Now, there's a difference between unsociable and hating others. The hating other part, the misanthropic part, is a much nastier charge. But he says it's a result of our experience in Egypt. 
that having been kicked out and having had others be unpleasant to us, we became unpleasant to everybody else. What does the Torah actually say? Love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So our Bible tells us be good to the, to the other because we were once the other. Uh, the Greek writers say Jews are nasty to the other because they were, na- they, they, were, they, they were the victims of nastiness. But the Jews always gravitated to Egypt throughout all these centuries. That's true. So, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, but the Egyptians had a, had, had a, a, a penchant for saying, un, saying not nice things about foreign interlopers. Dating back to the Bible and Joseph, it's toivahi, it's an it's abomination to eat together at the same table. So the Egyptians didn't like when foreign conquerors, whether they be uh, Persian or Greek or just you know, Jews walking in, they, don't, they want a homogeneous society of, of, of native Egyptians. And they, when they don't get it, they lash out in word or in deed. Okay. Um, only incidental references to the Jews exist among the Greek writers of most of the 3rd century. So it's a quiet hundred years with only stray references here and there from the Alexandrian conquest until the, uh, the end of Ptolemaic rule over Eretz Yisrael and the beginning of Seleucid rule around the year 200, which we'll get to about three weeks from now. Okay. Um, Greek merchandise. So that, that, that explains how the Greeks discovered the Jews. But how did the Jews discover the Greeks? The reciprocal question. So Greek merchandise began to arrive in Eretz Yisrael uh, around the 7th century before the Common Era. But it wasn't until Alexander's conquest that the connection between Athens and Jerusalem was, um, was direct. Prior to that, for a few centuries, it was mediated by Phoenician traders in the coastal cities of Eretz Yisrael. So, the Jew in Jerusalem doesn't actually encounter someone who comes from, from, from the Greek uh, islands of, of, of the Mediterranean, but rather someone from the Greek islands in the Mediterranean gets on a boat with, with product, goes to Ashkelon or to, uh, to Ashdod or to, to Yafo, unloads his stuff. You have you know, Philistine, Phoenician, whatever you want to call them, uh, peoples along the coastal cities who bring it inland, and then they sell to the Jews but no direct connection until uh, the, the 330s. Okay. The Orientals, and I include the Jews in the term Orientals here, disliked the conquering Greeks because they stole local wealth. Uh, they expropriate things for themselves. Taxes and just outright theft. And also, they devalued precious metals, partly because... The, the store of gold and silver that had, be, that had be, uh, been accumulated by the Persian monarchs and kept out of circulation, thus driving up the price, was then flooded into the market uh, to pay for expenditures of war and conquest during the, uh, the, the life of Alexander. So if, if you were a Jew who had precious metals, all of a sudden it was worth a lot less. And without real currency, your, your, your estate plummeted in value. So there were, there were, pr- there were problems, economic problems, uh, for the, the local residents as a result of the Macedonian conquest. Um, Hellenization was a slow process. It did not happen overnight. After Alexander died in June of 323, a war broke out between the generals. And the land of Israel occasionally had to support vast armies that were attacking from Asia into Egypt sometimes with as many as 80,000 troops and another quarter million hangers-on. 
So for a few weeks at a time, the small country of Eretz Yisrael would have to sustain a population of 300,000 people. How do you do that? Well, they steal the crops. They steal everything. It's not a, it's not a pleasant experience to be uh, the indigenous population along the road to war. And that road was the Via Maris, the, uh, the road of the sea, which went from uh, Syria-Lebanon down the, the, the Eretz Yisrael coast into the Sinai, into Egypt. Okay. Jerusalem changed hands many times. Uh, in fact, seven times in a 20-year stretch. In 320, in 318, again in 318, 315, 312, 312 again, and 302. Uh, after 10 years of uh, Eretz Yisrael under the rule of Antigonus, who was the Alexander's, Alexander's deputy in Asia, um, after 10 years under his rule, in 301, the country fell decisively to Ptolemy and to the Egyptians. Well, there was a Persian doctrine that said that the Persians inherited the universal kingdom from the earlier great empires of the world. Assyria, followed by Babylonia, followed by the Medes, followed by Persia, and, and that it was their right to rule the world. And that the Persian monarch was the king of kings, the Melech Malchei Hamlachim. Now we we use that expression to refer to God, but the Persian monarch regarded himself as the king of kings, universal king, the, the whole known world. And Ahasuerus ruled over 127 provinces. 127. It's a lot. Well, that means that rebellion is not just a political act and a foolish one at that, but it's a negation of an eternal truth the eternal truth that this is the universal kingdom, that this is what, what, what is supposed to be, what the gods want. So with Greek infighting, that universal principle died, and native peoples sought redemption. So the Egyptians at that time spoke about expelling diseased foreigners just as they had expelled the, the, the Jews of old. So that explains Manitho and Hecateus writing about how the Egyptians think that in the days of Moses it wasn't uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim because of uh, God with Esser Makis and, and, and promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather that the Jews were diseased lepers and they were kicked out. And that what's going to happen now? The Egyptians, the native Egyptians, are going to kick out whoever's there, including the Greeks, and maybe some Jews too. So native peoples are seeking messianic redemption. The Egyptians do it, and the Jews do too. So the Jews turn towards redemptive oracles, something that they had not done throughout the Persian period. Because remember, during the Persian period, life was okay. Things were stable. We don't look forward to Mashiach. We just live in the present and observe our religion, and everything will be fine. But in Daniel chapter 2, verse 41, we see a breakdown in the universal kingdom and maybe an opportunity for uh, Jewish salvation. So I will read to you the Pasuk. It's in very complicated Aramaic. Alright. <coughs> Nobody in this room has any idea what that means, myself included. Yeah. Now, if we accept in the canon, yes. Does that make sense? 
at a time when people spoke Aramaic, it made sense. It strikes us as a little bit odd because we think of the of Hebrew as the sacred tongue, and we want our, our sacred scriptures to be in Hebrew, and it also makes it a lot easier to understand for us. But at that time, uh, it was not it was not seen as odd in the least. Okay, let's read the English. The feet and the toes that you saw, partly of potter's earthenware and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, and it will have some of the firmness of iron, just as you saw iron mixed with clayish earthenware. So uh, the key point is a divided kingdom, that whereas it used to be, everyone was under one human sovereign of flesh and blood, Melech Basar Vadam, now that is no longer the case. You have a, a petty kingdom here, and a petty kingdom there, and a petty kingdom there. Seleucid, Ptolemy, Antigonus. Right? And, and you don't know who's going to be in charge next. How did the uh, Mepharshim interpret this Pasuk? So there was a tendency later on in rabbinic literature to interpret the fourth kingdom of Daniel's prophecies as not referring to Greece, but rather to Rome. Because in the days when the prophecy was first articulated, it probably was referring to Greece, since that was the, the, the reigning uh, uh, empire. But later on, when Greece goes the way of the wind, and Rome is, is, is uh, running the world, so it's tempting to say the last of the great mighty empires, referred to by, the, by the, the oracles of the Bible, is Rome. And what is this divided kingdom of Rome? What, when was Rome divided? So the Byzantine East and the Italian West. You have, uh, after the late 4th century, you have two emperors uh, competing with each other. And also you have the Orthodox Church and the Church of uh, of the Vatican, of of, of Western Christendom. So uh, here in the art scroll, they're, they're, they're partial to the Malbim. Uh, so I'll read you what it says. The area occupied by Roman Empire came to be dominated by two religions, Christianity and Islam. Both together comprise the latter fourth kingdom. One is strong as iron, the other is weak as pottery. Oh, that's one explanation. The division of the kingdom may also refer to the split of the Roman Empire into the Eastern Byzantine and Western Roman Empire. Okay, that's, that's a nice interpretation, but when, the, when this was written, and it was written right around the time of the War of the Diadochi, of the successors to Alexander, okay, what, what did they have in mind? The breakdown in Greek rule into separate Syrian, Mesopotam- uh, you know, Sy- Syrian, European, uh, and and Egyptian sectors. When did we say Daniel was written? So Daniel is very. It's, it's very difficult to, to assess when Daniel was written. Though the the, the, uh, the latter part of the book was probably composed in 168 before the Common Era, just before the Maccabean Rebellion, because it knows all about the, um, the devastation wrought by, by Antiochus IV, but doesn't know about uh, the glorious salvation. But parts of it may have been written 100 years earlier, uh, like uh, with the breakdown of Alexander's kingdom upon his death. Now, you also said they mentioned Islam. Islam wasn't until the 8th century. Yeah. All right, so that's, that's the art school quoting the Malbim, offering an alternative interpretations. Uh, that's, that's, that's their prerogative. Okay. <laughs> now, let's go to the story of Alexander meeting the Kohen Gadol. And I was, we're, we're going to have some fun. Where's my Josephus? Josephus tells that story also. Yeah, okay. So let's break out the big boy. Josephus, the English translation by William Whiston, 1728. We're going to go to Antiquities of the Jews, uh, book 11, at the end of the book. I'm going to read a lengthy passage, so my apologies for 
have long citations. You want to fit it in one volume, you got to have small print. Okay, so, it says like this. Now, Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, oh, wait, actually, let me read a little bit earlier. So, Alexander came into Syria and took Damascus. And when he obtained Sidon, he besieged Tyre. When he sent an epistle to the Jewish high priest to send some auxiliaries and to supply his army with provisions, that what he presents, he formally, uh, uh, that what presents he formally gave to Darius should now be given to the Macedonians. But the high priest answered the messengers that he had given an oath to Darius not to bear arms against him, and he said he would not transgress this while Darius was in the land of the living. Upon hearing this, Alexander was very angry, and he thought, and, and, and though he determined not to leave Tyre, which was yet to be taken, uh, as soon as he, um, he threatened, he would make an expedition against the Jewish high priest, and through him teach all men the lesson about to whom they must keep their oaths. So basically, this, this account of the story is, Alexander is fighting... Uh, the Persians in Lebanon. He wants Jewish support uh, from the high priest of Jerusalem, who is the head of the state of the, of the Jews, of Yehud. Uh, the Jews had a loyalty to Darius, with solemn oath, and the high priest says, I'm not going to violate my solemn oath to Darius as long as he's still alive. You know, No offense to you, Alexander, but I, I just can't do it. And what does Alexander say? I'm going to teach that guy a lesson. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and, and, and show him who's boss. Okay, so now what happens next? We skip a few pages. Now Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go to Jerusalem. And Yadua, the high priest, when he had heard that, was in agony, under terror, not knowing what he, uh, how he should meet the Macedonians, because the king was angry with him for his disobedience. He therefore ordained people should make supplications and offer sacrifices. You know, it's daven and fast, and, you know, we're in big trouble here, so we've got to beseech God for mercy. Okay. Um, whereupon God warned him in a dream which came upon him after he offered the sacrifices, that he should have courage and adorn the city and open the gates, that the rest appear in white garments, but that he and the priests meet the king in their, ha- in their habits, hobbits, whatever, the, in their priestly garments, um, without the dread of any ill consequences which providence of God would prevent. Upon waking up, he rejoiced and declared uh, the, uh, the warning he received from God, and everybody acted accordingly. So he's nervous. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Let's daven, let's fast, let's offer korbanos. And God comes to him in a dream and says, don't worry, open up the city, make a big celebration for Alexander, you go out with the Kohanim in your big day kahuna, and no, no harm will befall you. It's a very reassuring message. Okay. <coughs> so, the, uh, so the Gemara in Yoma, which brings down this story, brings down the story precisely because of that halacha question, or is, is the Kohen allowed to wear the big day kahuna in the, in the Medina, outside the temple confines? And the answer that the Gemara gives is either yes or, uh, or no, but these were not really the Big Day Kahuna, they just looked like the Big Day Kahuna, or an emergency situation, you can break the rules. Sounds like a Jewish answer. Okay, so we continue. And when he understood that he was not far from the city, he, uh, he went out in procession with the priests and multitude of citizens. The procession was venerable, the manner of it different from that of other nations. It reached a place called Safa, blah, 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 okay? Uh, and when the Phoenicians and Chaldeans who followed Alexander thought they should have liberty to plunder the city and torment the high priest to death, with the, which the king's displeasure fairly promised them, the reverse of it happened. So basically, you have the Jews coming out in a procession, in a, in a uh, parade, to greet Alexander with honor and dignity. 
and the Chaldeans and the Phoenicians are following Alexander's forces, thinking they're going to get the, the spoils of war because Alexander's going to kill the high priest and we're going to loot the city and take all the, good, the goodies. So, but the opposite happened. For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood clothed in fine linen, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing, with his mitre on his head, having the golden plate on which the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. So, he offers a salute and re- receives the high priest favorably. No, you know, sword into the stomach, no violence. This is going to have a happy ending. With, with respect offered to the high priest because of the name of God that is emblazoned on the, the tzitz. Okay. Now, the Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and encompass about him, whereupon the kings of Syria were, uh, were surprised at what Alexander had done and they asked him, what's going on here? Um, why do you offer adoration to the high priest of the Jews? So Alexander responds, I did not adore him, but that God who hath honored him with that high priesthood. Ah, I'm not giving cover to the Kohen Gadol, I'm giving cover to the God of the Kohen Gadol, who gave this man the, the job of the high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very uh, priestly garb, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, when I was first considering uh, how to obtain dominion over Asia. And he exhorted me to not delay, but to boldly conquer the the Persians. Okay? So, uh, basically, I saw the guy in a dream, and this is is the man. The high priest of the Jews was the guy I saw in my dream, telling me I'd be successful against the Persians. Okay. Um... But he never went to you, so I... This story says that he did. Yeah, so, I, I get that. Okay, but, but, but we're going to have to address the point of why the story exists if it didn't really happen. Um, then, he came into the city, he went into the temple and offered a sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction, which, by the way, doesn't make any sense halakhically, because can a, go, can a goy go into the, uh, to the, the, the Azara and, and offer a, a kovan on the Mizbeach? No, really can't. Um... And uh, magnificently treated both the high priest and the priest. So he gave honor and respect to them. Whereupon the book of Daniel was shown to him, where Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, and he supposed that he himself was the person intended, and he was glad. So, uh, so they showed him the book of Daniel, that the, it says the, Persians are gonna, the, the, the Greeks are going to defeat the Persians, and you're the man, you're in our Bible, we predicted that you were going to come. And he's, oh wow, you predicted I was going to come? Very, very nice. So... And then he sends everybody home. Then he calls them back the next day to offer favors upon them. Uh, and he says that you can um, enjoy the laws of your forefathers and pay no tribute in the seventh year, meaning the Shemitah year you don't have to pay taxes. Um, and he gives them everything they desire, blah, blah, blah. The rest we don't have to worry about. Okay. So, that's the version in Josephus. Let's now go to the Gemara and Yoma. See what, how it differs. Oops. Sure you the English? English what? <laughs> 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 okay, so here we go. Um, Tanya, we learn in our Brisa. But Tavis on the twenty-fifth day of the month of Tavis Yom Hagrizim. Who? It's the day of the, of Mount Gerizim, where we don't offer eulogies. We don't fast, we don't offer eulogies. It's a, one of those quasi-holidays, half-holidays of the scroll of fasts. What, what happened on that day? On that day, the Kuthians sought to destroy our temple in Jerusalem. They sought permission for this from Alexander Mogdon, from Alexander of Macedon. 
um, and he gave them permission. And um, it was found out by Shimon HaTzadik, Simon the Righteous, what happened. And so he put on the priestly vestments, and he uh, wrapped himself up, and he and the, the, uh, the prominent members of Israel went out with torches in their hand, and they walked all night, one uh, beside the other, until, they, until the crack of dawn. And then at the crack of dawn, they encountered the, the, the Macedonians, who said, who are these people? Um, and it was the, the, the Macedonians were told, these are the Jews who rebelled against you. But once they, uh, Alexander saw Shimon HaTzadik, uh, he got off of his horse and he bowed down. Um, and they said, they, they the, the underlings of Alexander said, a king like you, why should you bow down to a Jew like this? And he responded, well, I saw th- uh, this face uh, telling me in a dream um, that I'm going to be successful in war. Um, so he says to them, why did you come to, to see me? Um, to which they respond, "Could it be that the house from which we pray for your welfare, that it should not, that, that your kingdom should 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 be long lasting, that you should have issued an order for it to be destroyed?" So he says to them, "Well, who's going to destroy it?" To which the Jews respond, "The Cuthians. They want to destroy our temple." So which he responds, "Fine. I give them over into your hands. You can do to them whatever you want." So what what do the Jews do to the Cuthians? They uh, take the, tie them to, to the tails of horses and drag them over thorns and thistles until uh, all the way to Mount Grisim. And then they, they destroy the Mount Grisim and plow it over with vetch, uh, just as, as the Cuthians had wanted to do to our temple. And on that very day, a Yom Tov was made. That's the, 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 the Babylonian Talmud version of what happened. Okay, so you see there are a lot of differences. First of all, the name of the high priest is different. It's Yadua in Josephus. It's Shimon Atzadik, Simon the Righteous, in the, in the Gemara. Um, so let's now discuss, from an academic point of view, what really happened. So this is based upon an article that was written by Shia Cohen about 30 years ago. He says that the, the Yadua Alexander story is a combination of an Adventist story and an Epiphany story. An Adventist story is the ceremonial reception of a monarch upon arrival at a city. After much excitement and celebration, the guest would sacrifice to the god of that city, indicating that he was the ruler of the city, but, had ex- but that his rule is being accepted in a peaceful en- environment. Uh, sometimes the Adventist ceremony is part of a surrender to a new conqueror, like the case of Alexander at Babylon, and also the Josephus account of, of Alexander at Jerusalem. At the end of the story, the king offers benefactions to those whom he likes, uh, as was the case in uh, both the Josephus version and the version in the Talmud, except that the Jews ask for different things depending upon which version. In Josephus, they ask for living according to the ancestral laws. In the Talmud, we ask to, to stick it to the Samaritans. Um, okay. Um, originally, un- unlike the heathens who bring their idols out to meet the king, in the, in the, in the Jerusalem version of the story, with Yadua the high priest, he wears the tzitz. So we don't bring out our, our, our gods, our idols, because we Jews don't have any. What do we bring out instead? A piece of gold worn by our high priest that has our god's name on it. That's the difference between if it happened in a heathen environment than a Jewish environment. So, originally, this story, so says Shia Cohen, was a non-miraculous story that didn't have any dreams in it. There were no dreams. 
It was simply an Adventist tale of the Jews coming out to welcome Alexander, the conquering hero, uh, without a fight. Okay? That's the whole story. Um, the simple Adventist story was made necessary because pagan history doesn't mention anything about Jerusalem in the wars of Alexander, which gets us back to what we started with. Was, were the Jews in Jerusalem important to the Greek conquerors? Answer, no. What was important? Damascus, Sidon and Tyre, and Egypt. As for inland Judea, not really. So did Alexander really go to Jerusalem? Probably not. Therefore, we're, we're, we're embarrassed at our insignificance. So what do we do to erase our insignificance? Concoct a tale about how Alexander wanted to go to Jerusalem, and we welcomed him with open arms uh, with a big parade. So I know we've addressed this before, but let's talk about Hanukkah. Which is yes. Okay, so Hanukkah and Greeks. Yeah. If we're insignificant, what's the whole story there? Okay, so at that point, things are very different because... Uh, it's 150 years later, number one, and also the Jewish population had expanded at that point. It was, it was much, more, much larger than it was in the days of Alexander. Um, <coughs> also... Antiochus's uh, anti-Semitism plays a role in wanting to wipe out our religion. It's not purely politics. There's an element of person, uh, personality clash and cultural clash. It's not so much that the Jews were hugely powerful. It's that they re- resisted forced Hellenization. And having resisted it with, 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 with force of arms, the other side has to fight back and try to defeat us except that they're unsuccessful. Okay. Um, so that's why the Adventist story first came about, to make ourselves feel more important given the relative insignificance of Jerusalem in, its, in the moment of Alexander's uh, conquest. Now, the Epiphany story has a manifestation of the divine, and a soteriological epiphany means that there's salvation in this manifestation of the divine. It originally was borrowed from Catamundus and Athena, like I mentioned a half hour ago, from the, the Greek literature about a Celtic king conquering Marseille. Um, but it was, it was adopted as a Jewish story because it makes for a nice tale. The problem is that it's a flawed story. The Alexander Yadua story has a problem because the ending seems to forget about the beginning. In the beginning of the, of the Josephus version of the story, the high priest refused to supply military aid to the Greeks. But at the end of the story, what happens? The Jews welcome him with open arms. Okay, and he uh, offers sacrifices and says, you can live according to your ancestral laws. Well, what really happened? Did the Jews surrender to Alexander? Or did Alexander surrender to the Jews? It's, it seems to be a bit of a conflicted story. Or, and, and if the Jews didn't surrender, at least did, he, did Alexander accept the neutrality of the Jews? We don't know. So Cohen uh, theorizes that the Epiphany part was originally independent of the Ad- Adventist part of the story. The Adventist assumes that the Jews accepted Greek rule 
And the purpose of the story was to find a place for Jews in Hellenistic history. The Epiphany story teaches us the opposite, that Alexander surrenders to the Jews, and he joins, he joins the long list of distinguished people who recognize God's power and offer him a show of respect. So wasn't like, who else? Well, who else falls into that category of, of a heathen who recognizes God's power after some sort of a, a, an important tale of the, of the Bible or, or, or other literature? Naaman. All right, Yitro, even Nebuchadnezzar at one point, Korish, according to the version that we see in the book of Ezra, there, there are heathen kings who recognize the power of the Jewish deity. But even Alexander, yeah. I forgot which Tana he was friends with. Wasn't there, he was a friend of Tana, no? Alexander the Great? With Shimon Atzadik, the Koinga? No, forget it. Oh, no, no. I'm thinking of Roman Empire. I'm sorry. Roman. Uh-huh. What, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and, and uh, Antoninus yes. Pius? Yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. Now, the... Um, if, if it's true that the purpose of the epiphany part of the story was to show that a heathen leader recognized the God of the Jews then there's something that's actually missing from the Josephus version of the story. And that is a statement by the heathen king saying that he recognizes the great power of the Jewish God. Like Yitro himself says in Parshish Yisro, what does he say? Atayadati ki shemi kol halokim. Now I know that the, the, the Hebrew God is greater than all the other gods. So there's got to be some kind of statement like that out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, out of the mouth of, of Alexander. All right, well, in rabbinic literature, we do have this. So, um, I mean, there are other epiphany stories. For example, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah get thrown into a fire, and Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den. And what happens to them? They live. And, and who realizes the power of the Hebrew God? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, um, According to Vayikra Rabbah, Alexander says, Blessed is the God of Simon the Righteous. Blessed is the God of Simon the Righteous. So, of course, Shimon Atzadik, because this is the rabbinic literature version, not Yadua, the Josephus version, but it's, it's, a, it's an essential component to uh, the, 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 uh, the typical framework of this kind of story. There has to be a declaration by the heathen king that the God of the Jews is a great God. Okay, so Josephus leaves it out because he's catering to a non-Jewish readership. But the rabbinic literature, which is catering to a Jewish readership, says that, yeah, uh, Alexander made this remark. And the end of all these stories is that having recognized the power of the God of the Jews, the heathen who had a malicious intent, wanted to hurt one of our people or all of our people, now realizes I shouldn't do anything. I should leave them alone. So I tried to hurt them. I didn't mind to hurt them. But their God made a show of force. I recognize that God. I'm not going to do anything. What was the source, the rabbinic source? Because it couldn't have been Josephus. Josephus wasn't discovered until by the Christians in the 3rd century. So both rabbinic literature and Josephus are borrowing from an older common source. All right. Now, in in the Christian versions of the story... It's not just that Alexander says, blessed is the God of Simon the Righteous. It goes even one step further. In the Christian versions, Alexander converts to monotheism. Now, it doesn't convert to Judaism, but he accepts uh, the belief 
in one God and rejects the polytheism of his, of his Hellenistic past. I mean, that's a really wild uh, version of the, of, of the tale. The one, the one God. The one, whatever that means, one God. Okay, now the Adventist story originated, according to, to, to Shia Cohn, in pre-Maccabean times, when the Jews looked benevolently upon Gentile domination. So remember, the Adventist story is, we go out and greet Alexander, we throw him a big party in a parade, and he offers a sacrifice and he lets us live, and live according to the halakha, according to the, 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 rights of our, the, the laws of our ancestors. So in the, in the pre-Maccabean age, before the Jews got feisty and wanted to fight for their freedom, it was enough to say... He was interested in us, we, we liked him, we made a party, and he offered a korban, and, 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 we, and we live happily ever after. That was enough. But, in the Hasmonean period, when the Jews prided themselves about their victories against the Macedonians, about the rabin ba'ad me'atim, that the mighty, the many, fell into the hands of the few... So the Adventist story about us giving him a, 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 a parade and welcoming him in is no longer good enough. It's embarrassing at that point to say that we, we laid down our arms and allowed a, 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 a shagitz to come in and, and, and boss us around. It's embarrassing. So at that time, in the Hasmonean period, the Epiphany version of the story added the power of the God of Israel to defeat the Macedonian king. Now, not defeat him in the sense of kill him and have his carcass strewn through the street. No. Just that his hostility to Israel is taken away. He recognizes the power of the Hebrew God, and maybe even in the Christian story, you convert to monotheism. So, Shai Khan brilliantly takes one story that appears in two recensions, one in Josephus and one in the Talmud, and says that they really were two separate strands that were forced together to make a composite that actually doesn't make all that much sense, because it's contradictory, it's self-contradictory. But the Adventist is, Jews are happy that the, the, the Goyim even took note of us, and the epiphany is, well, we, we kind of beat them at their own game. We didn't defeat them militarily yet, yet, but they recognized the sovereignty of our God, not their gods, and not them. Okay, so as a, as a matter of historical fact, of course, they didn't put up a fight, and... Uh, Greek domination of Jerusalem and of the Yehud province was a foregone conclusion. Which uh, geographic um, region would dominate Eretz Israel? that was not a foregone conclusion. That was fought over for 20 years until finally the Egyptians win and sustain their control for 100 years. But that it was going to be a Greek overlord or Hellenistic overlord was obvious. So that's true from a historical point of view. But the way we look at it years and years later... Uh, projecting into the, back to the past what might have happened so we want to feel important and then when we're more boisterous and more uh, uh, adventurous about fighting the enemy we want to say that we didn't go down like a lemming that rather our God and our people forced them to make concessions because of the power of our God uh-huh. maybe they just accept you know made their deal Nobody was getting killed. They let them walk in and do. And then the, the Macedonians changed the way... Okay, so you, you, you bring up a good point. That by not uh, fighting back, it made it all the more likely that the laws of the Torah could be sustained as the local law. 
as, as, as the, the, the governing constitution of Yehud. If the Jews had been uh, more noticeably opposed with, with, with military means uh, to Alexander's conquest and fought for Darius, who's to say that the law of Torah, the Mosaic Torah, would, would have been permitted? After all, 150 years later, Antiochus IV says, too bad, you, know, you guys can't have this law anymore. Um, so in that respect, the Jews chose wisely. They picked the winner, uh, they, they jettisoned their relationship with the loser, and life continued religiously, as it would basically for the entire Second Temple period, except for a very brief moment of anti, anti-religious persecution uh, under one Seleucid monarch. Okay, so we'll stop here, and next time...